guys will stand with us, please.
ask the kids to come up. Kids, any of y'all that want to come forward, come sit down, spread out so you can't touch each other's arms. Okay, if you'd rather stay seated, that's fine too. Come join us down here. Good morning, good morning. I'm going to move this so I can see everybody. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Yep, spread out so you can't touch. Yep, y'all two are sisters, aren't you? Oh, you're fine. <laughs> All right. Well, the last couple weeks, uh, what, what have we been talking about? Let's see. Who remembers? What have we been talking about? Jesus. Yes. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. So we've been talking about about people, about man, about about us. Okay. What it means to be human, being made in the image of God. Right. And then last week we looked at, okay, that how that image was broken. Okay. And we looked at the uh, the story in Genesis three where God makes Adam and Eve. He makes them in their own image. He puts them in the garden. Right. And then sin comes into the world. Okay, because Adam and Eve believe the lie from Satan, who's uh, who's pictured there as the serpent, um, that they can't trust God, right? That God's holding out on them, and so eat, they eat the fruit of the tree. They disobey God. Okay, that image is broken. They feel guilty. They feel shameful. Okay, and God has to send them out of the garden. Okay, so that's how sin came into the world. So that's what we talked about last week. But now the question is, well. How did that sin spread to everyone? How did that sin spread to to everyone? Okay? Because, Naomi, did you eat the fruit of that same tree in the garden? No, you didn't eat it. Did anybody else? Emma, did you? No. No. We don't even know what that tree is. Right? So if you didn't eat the same fruit, how is it that you and me and your mommy and daddy and grandmommy and granddaddy and, and neighbors, how is it that we're sinners? Okay? So the question is, uh, if you didn't sin, just like Adam and Eve, you didn't eat from that tree, how is it that you're a sinner? Do, you, do we sin because we're already sinners? Or do we become sinners because we first sin? Well, that's the question again. Are, are we sinners... Or do we sin because we're already sinners? Like we're born sinners? Or... Do we become sinners when we first sin? We're born sinners. Okay, good. You guys come on. Go sit down. No. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But let's kind of play that out because it makes sense, right? It, it makes sense in our minds that, that we might or we might think, we might tend to think we become sinners when we first sin. Okay? We, that, that, that's what, that that's what happens. Okay? Because when does, when, does when does punishment come for you? Do you do you get I hope that when you get out of bed, you know, your mom or your daddy doesn't come in and go, all right, here's your spanking. No. When do you get when do you get a punishment? When do you get when do you get a punishment? We don't get punishment. Right. When you've done something wrong. OK. When you've done something wrong. OK. And so that that makes sense to us. OK. But there's there's a deeper truth that's that's there about why we do things that are wrong, why we disobey good instructions that were given. OK. And and why we're not postured, why we're not bent towards uh, obeying God and following him. OK. So let, let me read you. A, let me read you one of the clearest passages in Scripture about this, how this sin from Adam way, 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 way a long time ago spread to you today and to me and to everyone else. Paul wrote this to the church in Romans, Romans 5.12. He says, therefore, as through one man's sin, that's Adam, as through one man's sin, 
through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Okay, so that's a little complicated. Let me break it down for you. Two things that Paul says Adam gave us. These are wonderful gifts that Adam gave us, okay? Adam gave us a sin nature, okay? He gave us a sin nature. I'll explain that in a minute. And he also gives us guilt because we are deserving of God's punishment, okay? That's what he said. He said, through Adam's sin, okay, when Adam and Eve uh, ate of the fruit and they broke God's first commandment, don't eat from that fruit, then sin passed into everybody who would come after them, okay? But then he also says, Death spread to all men because what was the punishment due to Adam and Eve? God said, when you eat from the truth, the fruit, what will happen? Naomi? You'll die. That's right. That's right. And so from everyone who came from Adam and Eve, death then spread. That, that punishment continued on. Okay? So this is what Adam gives to us. Gives us a sin nature and he gives us the, the guilt of knowing we're deserving of God's punishment. Okay, well, what about that sin nature? What's a sin nature? That's a tough one. That's a tough one for a lot of adults to, to define. Okay, let me give you this. Sin nature means we're born. We're born with our inner lives, our souls. We're born with inner, our inner lives um, that are directed toward ourselves and what we want and not directed towards God and His ways. Okay? And so, therefore, when we get older, when we're old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, we choose sinful ways. Okay, we choose sinful ways. Now, are you as bad as you could be? No, no, okay? You're not as bad as you could be, but you're not as perfect as God designed you to be, okay? Let me ask you this. If you were hanging by a chain, okay, you're hanging up by a chain over top of him and Ethan's pool, how many links in that chain would have to break before you fall? All, you, you, so every single one of them has to break before you fall? How many, cha- how many links in that chain? One. Does it matter if it's the top one or the bottom one or one in between? No, because they're all working together. They're all working together, okay? And so this is what our sin nature comes out, and we do something wrong. It demonstrates that that's broken. That, that, that's, a, that's a broken chain, okay? If you tell a lie, okay, that chain breaks, okay? All right? But that proves that you have a sin nature, okay? Marley, did your mommy or daddy teach you how to steal something from your sibling? No, you mean they didn't sit you, sit you down and say, look, here's how you deceive them and here's how you take a toy. They tell you not to, but they don't teach you how to, right? No, nobody teaches you how to lash out and, and hit a sibling. Okay, I hope that you don't do that. But sometimes we get frustrated, we get angry, and, you know, we, we may pick a fight with somebody. And that may come to blows. And that's not right, but that's our sin nature coming out. Nobody teaches you how to do that. Okay? Parents have to correct that type of behavior. Okay? So you, you can see your sin nature coming out in, in, uh, uh, in the wrong things that we do. And that's exactly true. That's exactly true. It gets more com- it gets complicated as you get older, but that sin nature is still present. Okay, so this is what this is what Paul says we've inherited from Adam. Okay, we've inherited that uh, that sin nature. Further, Paul says this. He says in verse nineteen of Romans five, he says, "For as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, 
the many were made sinners. The many were made, made everyone who came after him sinners. Even so, through one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Okay, so get that. That's the key point, that Adam's sin brought all of us a sin nature and God's just punishment on us. Okay, let me give you one illustration and then we'll, we'll, we'll try and wrap this up. Okay, think of an apple tree. Does an apple tree become an apple tree when it first shows an apple? No, it's always an apple tree. In fact, if you ever watch and you see how a tree grows, that apple tree will, will live and grow for years before it bears the first fruit of an apple. But it's always an apple tree, right? So it is with us that we have a sin nature, okay? And we, you know, a child, you may not show sinful behavior that's very, very clear, you know, for years, but it's always present, okay? That's always part of our, part of our nature, Okay, and that we're responsible for this. We're responsible for that. You might think that, well, I didn't ask to have this. No, how can I be, how, how can I be, you know, how can God justly punish me and condemn me for a sin nature, one that I didn't ask to have? Well, this is the way God designed it, and we know that God is good and that God is right. Okay, and we get into the gospel more later in coming weeks. We're going to see that this exalts and magnifies God's grace for us. Okay, but this is the way God has designed it. But also, when we sin, does anybody twist your arm and make you do it? No, we choose to. We, we choose to sin. In those moments, our sinful thoughts, our sinful actions, we want to do them. And our, and our conscience, Paul says, our conscience bears witness to us that, oh my goodness, I should not have done that. That was wrong. That, that was wrong. And that's part of God's design for us that shows we need, we need him. We need him to fix what's broken in us. Okay? All right, you think, remember, I just read from, uh, from Romans 5, okay? Did you catch the last part where Paul said, he said, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. But did you hear the good news at the end of it? Through the obedience of one. Who's that one? Big capital O. One, God. Okay, let's break that down a little further. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so who's the one that was obedient? Jesus. Yes, good. Yeah, Jesus. Through the obedience of Jesus, the many were made righteous. Do you see in the same way that sin spread to all, we're given a sin nature, because one man was disobedient, because of Adam's sin, but also because of Jesus, who was the perfect Adam, because of his obedience and his perfectness and his righteousness and his sacrifice on the cross, Paul says the many will be made righteous. So the guilt and the sin that you have and that, that, that is on you, there's, God has made a way for you to be made new, right? That, that tells us we need a new heart. Right. We, we need a new heart because that's what's broken in us. And that's what Jesus came to do was to give us a new heart, to take out the heart, a heart of stone. And to give us a soft, malleable heart that loves God rightly and desires to follow him and treats others and loves others. In the same way that we wrongly love ourselves. OK. And so that's that's a, that's our lesson for today. That's how sin spread from Adam long, long, long time ago to us. Is that we have that same sin nature. We have that guilt that comes upon us. 
because of what Adam did. And so we walk into the world with that. But thank God that he gives us a way to know him and to be made right with him and to be given a new heart so that we can walk in a way that's pleasing to him. And we'll talk more about that in coming weeks, okay? But I didn't want to leave you on a dark note. I wanted to give you hope, okay? Because that is this is a this is a hard this is a hard lesson today, um, but it's also filled with hope. All right. Well, let me pray for us, and then you guys can be dismissed. Father God, Lord, we thank you, and we praise you. But it's hard to look in the mirror and be reminded that we have a sin nature. And Father, the world will tell us to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we're strong, that we're powerful, that we can do anything, and we can do a lot of amazing things. And that in the common grace you've given to us as people, we can do phenomenal things. But we can't fix the guilt and the sin that weighs upon us. But thank you that you sent Jesus to do what we could not that in, the, in the, the picture of the pilgrim's progress where pilgrim comes and he sees the cross and the guilt that he has and he wears as a backpack, it falls off him and it rolls down in the open grave. Father, so when we turn to Christ, the guilt and the shame washes away and we know that our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west and we're given a new heart. As Paul said, the many will be made righteous through the obedience of the one Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray for these young minds this morning in their hearts that they would see their sin, their need for Jesus. And that doesn't come just by default because they live in a family that brings them to church. But they themselves must turn to Christ, welcome him into their, into their hearts, and trust in him. So, Father, I pray that you would lead each one of these through a path of salvation, that Christ would become more clear in their hearts and their minds, they would love Jesus and they would love people. And they might exalt your name. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.
moment of prayer, and at this point in our service, we, we normally pray for our missionaries, but Al and I were talking this morning, and we, we want to have a special time of prayer for our nation. And uh, to do this, what, uh, what I'd like to do is I want to read through Psalm 2. Um, it's 12 verses. I want to read through it. I want you just to think about it. And then I'm going to just pray through the psalm. It won't take long, but just highlight some of the things that are mentioned in the psalm um, that God says he will do and ask for, uh, just, just, just petition the Lord uh, for, for our nation. Um, so I want to read this, and, uh, and then I'll pray for us. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters, fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He says to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's, that's Jesus. The psalmist is speaking of. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoicing with and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and it's been a trying week for us and for the nation. So many things are on the table. These are not political things, Father, but these are at their root. These are gospel things. These are moral things. These are theological things that, that press on the very cores of what we hold dear. So, Father, the culture seems to be bent and even exalts vain things. So those take counsel together with man-centered ideologies and blatantly condemn you and your word. Your promises. Father, we sit and we think there's an unsettling that exists in us if we're honest. I pray, Father, it's not for selfish reasons, that it's not for political gain, it's not to thumb the nose at someone who holds a different belief that we do. And Father, these are rooted in the gospel, that we desire that Christ would be exalted, that we desire that you would be exalted among the nation and that your purposes and your plans and the things that you have said are good and that we as a human race are best suited to follow them. 
So, Father, as we see those things slipping away or even moving in a trajectory that is away from your good promises, Father, think that we are unsettled. Father, we know and we trust that you are not unsettled. You are not removed from your throne. That, as the psalmist says, you laugh. You, you laugh in the same way that, you know, that we might laugh at a small creature in our yard that tries to defy us when, when it's not doing what we want it to. We don't want it there. Father, you are sovereign over all things. That if you did the greater thing of creating all that exists around us and fashioning it and designing it, Father, you have all things in your hands and that the future of nations, even our nation, is not unknown to you and is not out of your grasp. For Father, we're reminded that when the psalmist says that you've installed your king upon Zion, upon your holy mountain, that when you've said, you are my son to Jesus, today I have gotten you when he was incarnated. That, that we sit this side of the cross knowing that Christ is enthroned on high because of his obedience, because of his perfection, because he was the divine son of God, because he was the perfect Adam. Death could not hold him. Sin could not keep him. There was no guilt in your court when he entered into it. And you said, sit here at my right hand. This is your rightful throne. And there he sits until all nations are made a footstool under his feet. For you have promised and your promise is good. That if Christ asks, that you will surely give the nations as his inheritance. And he has asked. And you are sure to give it. And so, Father, we ask as we are in this time, this time of sifting, Lord, where we may have complained for years and even for decades that it's too easy to be a quote-unquote Christian in America. You can fake it. It's not becoming easy anymore. So, Father, as you do your sifting work, make the gospel more clear to us that we would see Jesus and we would see our need for Him and the need for others to know Him and the rich good that He offers us in Christ and a new creation and our need for a new heart and the needs of others to have a new heart because that's the only hope for a nation. You can't legislate morality as good as laws and decrees and Judicial judgments are fundamentally new hearts must be given through the gospel. So, Father, would you do this for your church? Strengthen her, refine her as through fire, and would you keep us through that, that we would come out refined, pure like silver? Father, we ask for those who will take power and authority in our nation, and even for our current president and the one coming in, Father, that they would show discernment, 
For you said that they should take warning, that they should worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling to do homage to the Son. So would you open the eyes of all those who are in leadership currently and those to come that they might see Jesus, that there would be a a salvation that is clear and evident, a turning toward you rather than a turning away. That, Father, these, these who would take office, that they would exalt and see the value of life, the dignity and honor that it is in the womb, outside of the womb, through childhood, adulthood, even on to the point of death. Because we're created in your image. We bear that mark even from the first notion of life inside the womb. Father, there would be dignity and honor that would be cherished in our lives together. That family, as you've ordained it, would be exalted, recognizing that it's not perfect but lifting it up as you have described it and defined it and saying this is what the Lord desires. This is good. May we seek this and may we grant grace where it is broken. Father, we would be a nation of, of laws, not of judges. Father, good promises that you have given to us that those in leadership would cherish and cling to, that you would open their eyes. Again, not that we might be able to say, ha, ha, I told you. But that a nation might thrive for your glory. Because the rest of the world watches, it looks at us and says, that's what Christianity looks like. Father, I'll, do a, I'll say, be the first to say we do a poor job of representing you to the nations. So, Father, would you bring a change that in the midst of such uncertainty, in the midst of such turmoil, in the, sin, in the midst of such darkness, you might bring revival. You might bring a turning to you as the only source of hope, as the only source of peace, as the only source of of our being equal in dignity and honor and value and yet being able to hold distinct and different roles in society because we need everyone in order to thrive. Father, race would be broken down as a barrier not because certain groups feel guilty and because certain groups feel privileged but because we're made in your image. That's what it means to be human. That we each have a sin nature. No one, regardless of class, race, sex, position, wealth, escapes hell because of that privilege. Or because of a particular way they grew up. 
that we all need the grace of the gospel. And that, Father, we might have an economy of grace with us as a nation that would acknowledge our need for grace through Christ. And that, Father, we might be a nation blessed not because we figured it out, not because we put the right people in office, but because we as a nation seek to take refuge in Christ, to the one who spread his wings, if you will, on the cross and said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. And Father, we are a nation that is weary and heavy laden. Would you do this, Lord? Would you do this and all so much more than we can ask, than we can even articulate in our limited ability to verbalize the struggles that we undergo? Would you do all this and more for your glory and that Christ might receive his inheritance in full? Now, as Alan comes and brings your word, Father, would you touch our hearts where we need it most to live in boldness and in faith during a time that is very, very unsettling, that our gospel witness in our lives as Christians would shine all the more brightly. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Continuing in John, so if you'll turn to John 17, John chapter 17, Christ's high priestly prayer. I won't read all of it, but the, the context is verse, verses 10 through 26. Okay, so today I'm going to highlight four specific ways that Jesus prays for the saints. Okay, because in Jesus, the way he prays this, he starts by singling out the disciples, and then he very clearly moves to praying for all that would believe, all who will ever believe, all the saints covering the entire span of time living here at this time, and those who would become uh, those who would become Christians. So we're going to look at these four ways in which Jesus prays. Shanna, don't worry too much. I'm going to move quickly. Don't feel like you have to keep up with everything. I emailed you my notes so that you don't have to worry about staying together with me because sometimes I move quickly. Yeah, so <laughs> so, so uh, avoid burning up the page with the with the pen smoke. So, all right. So so let me just read some of this to you, and um, and then I'll give you the outline objective, and we'll move forward. Jesus says, "All mine are yours." Verse ten, and yours are mine. This is right after he says, "I'm not praying for the world, but for these specifically." He says, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, and they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. 
your word is true. So in those few verses are four specific ways that Jesus prays on our behalf. And again, you should be you should be confident and have great hope at the fact that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. He's praying for you even now. And as excited as I am that so many people have told me over the years that they constantly pray for me, nothing gives me more hope than knowing that Jesus himself is making intercession for me. The righteous one is making intercession for me. So, Here's the four ways just to kind of signpost my outline for you. Jesus prays that the Father would keep us. Jesus prays that we would become one as he and the Father are one. Jesus prays that the Father would keep us from the evil one. And then Jesus prays that we would be sanctified by the truth. So those are four things. So here's the objective, to understand the meaning and to see the love couched within the prayers of Jesus on behalf of the saints. Very simple. Kind of low-hanging fruit today, there's a, there's a few moments where we'll get a bit theological, so I'll tell you when to buckle in for those things. So let's work through this as Jesus prays for us. And you need to understand this, first of all, that Jesus prays with a robust theology. Jesus prays with an absolute understanding of God the Father, because Jesus is God himself. So his prayers are right and true and probably a lot different than your and my prayers quite often. So this comes from a robust theology. This comes from a place of the knowledge of God the Father, unlike you and I have. So Jesus prays in this way. He says, first, Jesus prays that the Father would keep us in his name. He prays that the Father would keep you as his saints in his name. And I want you to understand some components of God's keeping power. As far as I understand, this is what Jesus would know of God the Father, that you and I are working to grasp, and this is kind of fuel behind the prayer. And so we see several components of God's keeping power already displayed in the text. God's keeping power is connected to His divine election. We saw this last week. We belong to the Father before the foundations of the world. Those belonging to the Father, He gives to the Son. We walk through this. You can go back and listen to the sermon or you can look at the notes or whatever if you want those. God's keeping power is directly connected to God's election, God's divine election. Before the foundations of the world, God placed his affections. God placed his regard on us. There's, there's, it should not come as a surprise to us that we, we understand God's keeping power in light of what we've already seen in the text, that we belong to God, that those he chose before the foundation of the world will become adoption as sons that those he foreknew he also predestined that those he set regard upon or affections upon salvifically it should come as no surprise that knowing that we can see that there is keeping power in God's divine election and Jesus prays with that knowledge so we have to understand that the keeping work of God is necessary for our continued allegiance and for our salvation. It's not just that we belong to him then, that he upheld us then, but that he constantly sustains, constantly upholds us. You understand? Uh, One preacher said once upon a time, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Period. Simple as that. It's not that, okay, you're raised to walk in newness of life. Good luck, young man. Good luck making it all the way to the end. Good luck making it to that finish line that Paul talks about. Good luck achieving that. Good luck making it to that culminating point in your life 
to where you reach glorification without the sustaining providential work of God the entire time. He carries us. He rescues us from darkness. And he doesn't just bring us into the light, but he keeps us in the light. You understand? He keeps us and carries us in this light this whole time. That's the keeping covenantal power of God. And this is Jesus' understanding as he's praying that God would keep those that he had given to Jesus. If the standard for salvation is perfection, what would keep us in Christ other than Christ himself? I mean, it's pretty simple. That's why we continue. That's why we make it to the end. That's why the saints of God persevere. It's not because we've been magically molded or made so that we can withstand the enemy, but that we are shielded, we are guarded, we are, we are filled with the righteousness of Jesus, and we are filled with the Spirit of God, and these things work to our favor to see to it that those who belong to God from the very beginning make it until the end. It's the beauty of the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. But our perseverance is rooted in the power of God and His divine election, not in our being able to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and move forward. So God's keeping power is connected to His divine election. Moving quickly, God, God's keeping power is also connected to His desire and to His will. God desires that you make it to the end. God desires to keep you. Now, there's a debate right now that, or have been forever, that God does not get, well, the debate is, does God get all of his desires or does he not? Now, here's, if you'll if you endure for just a minute, let's get a little bit theological, okay? I will go out and say, I believe that God gets all of his desires. And I'm taking into the account that we read places in First Peter and, uh, and, and First Timothy where it says that God desires that all men might be saved. I do believe there's a way of interpreting that. I do believe there's a way of understanding that. I believe there's a way of looking at the wills of God, the, du- the dual wills of God, will of command, will of decree, and making sense of all these things that are otherwise seemingly but not necessarily contradictory. Some would say that God does not get all that he desires. This is a traditional Arminian position. They would say that God's desire is that all, without exception, God's desire is that all without exception would be saved, but broad is the way and long is the road that leads to destruction. Therefore, God does not get all of his desires. Now, I will grant this. God created a world and God said, don't sin. Sin is bad. So clearly God's desire you could say, is that you wouldn't sin. God tells us not to sin, right? So we can say God's desire is that you not sin, yet you have a God who is providentially and sovereignly over all things, and yet he providentially brings sin to pass. He doesn't commit sin. There's no darkness in him. But we'd be lying to ourselves if we said that, that, that God is, is, is so far removed that he has nothing to do with it. He has to sovereignly superintend. I mean, he's the one that told Satan to go and attack Job, these great, these great evils that are done unto Job is because God said, hey, I ordain that you'll do that. I mean, John Piper writes a fantastic article saying, how can God be good and ordain that sin be, where he helps to understand biblically, theologically, Christologically, how we can reconcile these, these crazy truths in our minds according with the scriptures. It's a real debate. It's a real issue. I would argue that according to Scripture, God gets all that He desires. I would just say that sometimes God's desire is that He would be upset, is that He would be mad, 
if God's ordaining all things to be and there are things that, that, that he hates, then God decides that I'm, I, I'm going to bring this to pass and I'm going to hate it. It's not that he was out of its, it was out of his control. He brings these things to pass according to his will. We see that in Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, all things. That is rightly understood as all things without exception. He works all things after the counsel of his will. All things come to pass according to his will. Again, the reason hermeneutics matters, the reason proper interpretation and handling of the text matters is that you can take there being no darkness in God and then you can rightly reconcile the fact that he brings all things according to the counsel of his will, even the things that are hard. What what you meant for evil, God meant for good at the end of Genesis, talking about the life of Joseph. Was evil not done unto Joseph? Absolutely. And God makes it very clear. There was two intentions, one action. There's the intent of those who are bringing evil, and then there's God who is only good, bringing about good out of these things. God's not evil. There's no darkness in him. We're not saying that. We're not positing that by any, any stretch of the imagination. But we can confidently say that it was God's will that these things would come to pass for his greater good and glory. So it gets a little bit theological. Isaiah 14, 26 through 28. This is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? Who will frustrate that which God has purposed is what Isaiah is asking. It's a rhetorical question because the answer is very clearly and obviously no one. No one can frustrate the will of God. No one can uh, uh, undo that which God has set into motion. He makes that very clear in Romans 9 and in other places. Spe- uh, speaking of which, Romans nine 14, I'm just going to read several of these verses beginning in 14. The context here is that Paul deals preemptively with those who would question his explanation of God's use of people for his own glory. Go back and read all of Romans 9 and you'll get that in your context. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Bringing question, bringing accusation against God and what he determines or what he wills. And Paul's saying, you can't do that. You can't, you can't do that. You sit there as a lump of clay attempting to, to, to bring an accusation against the potter and say, why have you formed me this way? I mean, Paul anticipates pushback, just like me as a Reformed teacher would anticipate some pushback, right? So Paul here is anticipating this argument, and he's saying, listen, you can't, you can't say to the, to the potter as the clay, why have you formed me this way? Verse 20 says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will he that is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out for the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for his glory? 
I said, I believe that God gets his desires. And I believe that that's a part of the theology behind Christ's prayers. Lord, keep them according to your will, according to your desire. Job 23, uh, 13, and what God's soul desires, that he does without exception. He does it. What God wants to come to pass, comes to pass. And the beauty of the sovereignty of God is even when hard things happen, it does not diminish or impugn the character and the goodness of God. That's why theology matters so much. Because what else do you do with all the junk around us? I feel like Antoine working on my mic here. For me. <laughs> Sorry. What does it say about God if he desires something but can't have it? What does it say about the sovereign rule of the world when he says, I want such and such a thing to come to pass, but I can't have it? It doesn't say anything good, I'll tell you that. Here's a question. So how do we reconcile God getting all that he desires and there being sin in the world? Or God making it clear that his will is set against sinful conduct? How do we reconcile these things? Well, I'm going to point you to something that we've talked about before, but if you're unfamiliar with it, I'm just using this time to point you to it so we can move forward. And that is the dual wills of God, God's will of command and God's will of decree. There are things that God has said, hey, don't sin. But at the same time, God has, God has set a world that, that would be broken, that would fall, that there would be transgression, also that he could be glorified to the uttermost. Things are happening according to plan. That's what I believe the overwhelming theme of the Bible is teaching us over and over again. It's how we reconcile these difficult things is God commands a thing, but he also decrees a thing. God says, Avery, don't sin, but Avery's going to sin because Avery's broken. God says, Alan, don't sin, but Alan's going to sin because Alan's broken. And if I'm going to be consistent with what the scripture teaches, I believe that God gets all of his desires and I have to say, okay, then ultimately God's will of decree is that sin would enter the world. Now, he's not dark. He's not bad. He's only good. You have to look at why he brings these things to pass. So, God's keeping power is connected to his desire and to his will. But God's keeping power is also connected to his love for the Son. All right, so let's go back to some more low-hanging fruit here. Let's get out of the theological conundrum there. So, God's keeping power is connected to his love for the Son. The church is evidence of God's love for the Son. I mean, think about that. God loved the Son so much. Even though they're equal. There's this, I'm reading this book, um, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, and, and the author is talking over and over about the, the, the love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And how, and how that love cascades from Father to Son, the Holy Spirit, onto us. You know, and it's this beautiful, beautiful working of the love between the triune Godhead. And so here you see a manifestation of that in that the father loves the son so much that he did what? He gives the son a bride. He gives the son a bride. He gives the son a people for himself. He gives the son a people that will be his bride for always and will worship and will glorify God in that union. This is a loving thing that the father has done. You don't have to teach a future bride or groom to be excited about their wedding day. <laughs> if you're not married in this room and your wedding day is approaching and you have this abysmal attitude about it and you're like, oh, this is the end. 
you might want to back up and not just get married so quick. You know, might not be for you right now, right? You know, I know that when I got married, I was very excited. And my, my father-in-law, you know, what I could see through my tears, my father-in-law, because I'm an ugly crier, you know, I just lose it. And my grooms are making fun of me, poking me in the back. You sissy, man, put your, put your big boy pants on. You know, so the, uh, you know, I'm upset with them under my breath. I'm crying. I'm seeing her walking down here. My father-in-law's walking like, suck it up, you sissy, man. My, my, my daughter's not marrying a weenie. You know, I'm like, all these emotions are coming at me. He gets right up there. And like, and this may not be true, but I'm like, maybe he's not going to hand her off to me. <laughs> maybe that transaction's not going to happen. That's a handoff for you sports ball people, right? So I'm like, what's, what's, what's going on? You know, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't want to give her to me, but, but he did. But that's a moment, right? That's a moment where he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm handing you my daughter for you to love her and take care of her. And the cool thing is, my wife didn't become less a daughter to her father when he gave her to me. But she still very much belongs to her dad as a daughter. But she also belongs to me as a wife. And her dad loves her, and I love her. And we start to see the beauty of, of, of marriage as it points to something deeper than all of us. It points to something wonderful, and that God because of his great love for the son, he says, I'm giving you a bride. And that's magnificent, right? God's keeping power is connected to his love for the son. God loves his son. So what's he going to do? He's going to take care of the son's bride. Why? Because the son loves his bride. We would be fools to think that God's not for us when we belong to Jesus. We are God's gift to Jesus. Jesus was given a bride by the Father. Jesus, the groom, then does what is best. Listen to this. We're going to go back here to this text. Jesus, the groom, then does what is best in an act of ultimate love. Jesus does this. Listen, he says, and I am no longer in the world, verse 11, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. What does he do? He solicits the help and the work of the Father to aid him in protecting his bride. Because he knows that the Father loves the Son, and therefore the Father loves the bride of Christ. And so what better thing to do? Does it mean that Jesus can't take care of his bride? No. But let me tell you something. You know, if, if it's like, hey, I can defend my wife by myself, or I can get, you know, her dad, who's not afraid of anything, to come and help me protect my bride. I'm like, come on, come on, Jody Patterson. Let's do this thing together. You know, you, you stand in front, I'll stand in the back, and we'll, we'll fight off everybody. Let's, let's handle this together rather than me by myself, you know. So I, th I think it's this wonderful thing that we see in Jesus turning and saying, you've given me this bride. Will you keep her? Will you work to make sure that she's safe? It's fantastic. So Jesus prays with a robust theology, trusting and the keeping power of the Father. And then Jesus prays something else here. Jesus prays that we might be one as he and the Father are one. Now, this is a short point. I don't have many notes to this. Uh, I don't think it demands many notes to this, interestingly, because it can be, you can dive off into heresy very quickly. So let me stave off that. 
Jesus prays that we might be one as he and the Father are one. This demands clarity, lest we fall into heresy. It does not mean this. It does not mean that we would become identically the same to God the Father and God the Son. It does not mean that we would become gods. It doesn't mean that we would become omniscient or omnipotent or any of these things. It doesn't mean that at all. What it most likely means, and I'm going to share this quote from one commentary that I read, and then I'll give why I think that that makes sense as I understand it, that the disciples might be one or that they might be unified in their stand over against the world. That they might be unified in love in the defense of truth. And here's why this translation or this interpretation appeals to me the most. Because unity will be helpful when it comes to facing persecution and practicing apologetics. In context, Jesus has done what? He's already warned them several times these things are coming. I took the brunt of it, now you are. So it's all too important that you become one. That you become one, that you're, that you're solidified, that you're unified, that you're together so that you can wage war together. It's better to stand with a host of soldiers at your side than to stand alone. Sometimes we have to stand alone, but given the option... I want to stand with, a, with an entourage. I want to stand with a platoon. I want to stand with soldiers beside me that are fighting the same fight, that are in agreement as far as the fundamental things of Christianity, that have apologetics, that understand we've got to defend the faith, so let's do it together. And this oneness is repeated throughout this text in verses 21, 22, and 23. So it's significant. It matters that we be one. So Jesus prays that we might be one as he and the Father are one. And, and, and before we move to the third, just, it, it, just think about it, though. Think about um, if you're out evangelizing and you've got a friend with you or a partner that evangelizes with you or you're in a conversation with someone. You know, I don't know about you, but I like having people with me, you know, to keep me from getting beat up. But I also like having people with me, you know, that, that, will, that, that will just help to share. Maybe, maybe I'll forget something. Maybe... I, I won't know this. Maybe I won't know how to respond, but then there's someone there. And collectively, we can give a right response um, apologetically to, to, to the need that's in front of us. So Jesus prays that we might be one as he and the Father are one. Thirdly, Jesus prays that we not be taken from this world, but that we are kept from the evil one. So I want to spend a few minutes on this and start by asking this question. Why would a loving groom not want to remove his bride from harm's way because that's that's what he says he makes a point to say i don't want to take them from the world and i'm over here thinking that would be that would be super great if 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 you could have just done that you know we could have avoided all this junk all this trash that we're having to deal with and we could just be with you i mean give me that i'll take that but that's not how the apostle paul prayed when he was in prison was it he prays very differently He talks about wanting to be with God. He talks about wanting to be with Jesus. But then he says, but for you, it's better that I remain in this flesh. This is a guy who's been beaten. This is a guy who has been beaten and presumed dead. This is a guy who's in prison. And he's saying, it's better for me to be here for your sake. And that sentiment rings true here. The reason we're not taken out of the world is because God has come up with a redemptive strategy that involves you. The gospel is given to us, right? We receive the gospel, and then we take the gospel. 
And that's God's strategic plan for redemption. It makes our involvement in a broken world necessary. Listen to Romans 10, 14, and 15, a popular passage. It really just summarizes it well. The context is Paul is making a case for, well, you, you can understand it in context. The context is salvation, the need of salvation through the gospel. And he says, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him and who they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I mean, there's your, there's your evangelism paradigm for the church in a nutshell. You know, we're given the gospel. It's lived out. It's accomplished through Christ. It's received. And then it's shared. And that's the cycle. We receive the gospel by the grace of God. Those appointed to salvation believe. Then we're jumping on that cycle. We're bringing the gospel to people. We're planting, we're watering. We're planting, we're watering. We have the keys. We have the keys. We can put the key in the door. We can unlock it and God opens it. Or we can open it and people will, God will usher people through. That's, that's, that's the strategic redemptive paradigm or plan. Jesus gives us the gospel. We share the gospel. Those who belong to God before the foundation of the world receive it and are changed by it and they join that cycle that strategy that plan jesus doesn't just pray that we're taken out of the world but jesus prays that we would be protected from the evil one now let me explain something to you i've wrestled over this text i hope that i'm right as i understand it um as i understand this it's not i'm not trying to preach my opinion but i kind of want to share cogently logically why I, what I think this is saying and why. So Jesus prays that we be kept from evil. I don't pray that you take them out of the world, rather they stay in the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one, that you would protect them from the evil one. Listen, there's a difference from being kept from evil and being kept from the evil one. You can't separate Satan and evil. I understand that. You know, Satan is evil by definition. I get that. You can't, you can't, Divorce the two. You can't disassociate the truth, the two. So you can't separate evil from the evil one. But there is a distinction between Satan's having mastery over you and Satan uh, and, and the avoidable reality of Satan's attacks upon you. You follow me on the difference there. Satan having mastery over you is different from the attacks that he presses you with. There is a, a difference there are those attacks because there is evil, because there is Satan, because he's active, because he's, he capitalizes on opportunities and he's good at what he does. But there's a difference in being mastered by or surrendering lordship to Satan and being exposed to his attacks. There's a difference there. So when Jesus prays that we be kept from the evil one, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with losing salvation. He's not saying keep them from losing their salvation. Just like when he said, hey, you need the Spirit of God to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from falling away. He's not talking about loss of salvation. He's talking about, you know, you, you being tripped up by a lack of faith or by an immaturity, but that you need to be steadfast and strong and mature in your faith, as we looked at several weeks ago. It doesn't mean that we won't face persecution, obviously. There's a, there's a problem there if we're looking at this and the way we interpret it is, oh, he's praying that 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 no harm will come to us when we're also promised that harm will come to us by the same man that's praying this. So it can't mean that. So just 
logic and deductive reasoning shows us that we have to interpret it differently than than loss of salvation or that Jesus is praying that we won't face persecution. Because if that's the case, God clearly hasn't listened to the prayers of the son. But we know that God does hear the prayers of the son. So it makes sense to me to be thoroughly biblical, I think, is that he's saying keep them from keep them from surrendering lordship or 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 the mastery of of the evil one it means that jesus is essentially praying that we would persevere to the end one theologian said that there are two ways that god keeps us from evil by his spirit and by his providence. I thought this was helpful, so I just wanted to include it. By his spirit and by his providence. By the power of the spirit, the evil within us is restrained because we all are sinners by nature, as Austin talked about. Genesis 26, it says, I also withheld you from sinning against me. So there's this great providential work that God does sometimes to to keep us using the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of God as God, to keep us from sinning. Jeremiah thirty-two forty. I will put fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. So sometimes that, that, that way that God keeps us from evil is inward, and sometimes it's outward. Sometimes you read things like God will not, uh, you know, put, put us in a situation that we can't get out of. It doesn't say he won't put you in something that won't kill you, <laughs> you know, but uh, so there's inward and there's outward. So ultimately, Jesus is praying that while we are in the world fighting for truth and facing down the enemy, that we, although we are battered, do not give in to the enemy, but rather that we persevere till the end. You ever wonder why there is a doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? Well, it's because of the keeping power of God. It's because of the intercessory prayers of Christ. So the final thing I want you to see is this, the final the final prayer. So Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And then he says, which you have given me that they may become one as we are one. He says in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In verse 16, he says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. So we'll end with this, with this work of sanctification. Jesus prays that we might be sanctified in the truth. Now, to be sanctified means to be set apart, to be distinguished as holy. Only the saints of God have that applied to them. All right? and, and obviously God the Father, or God, or God, the, Holy, God the Trinity. So he calls us... He rescues us, and then his prayers are, hey, sanctify them in the truth. Jesus is essentially praying that we will do this, receive the truth, believe the truth, and apply the truth or live out the truth. This is kind of what's going on here. Sanctification and truth are in a marriage that cannot be divorced. Absolute truth absolutely sanctifies. It sets us apart. I should say this, adhering to absolute truth is what works to sanctify us. Truth, and I mean biblical truth, is powerful and alive, so it is therefore status-altering. It is 
sanctifying. Listen to John 8, 31, 32, a familiar passage. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. Status altering. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from slavery of sin. Freedom from conformity of the world. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What affords us that opportunity? Salvation. Set free, free from conformity, free from the slavery of sin. This is important. Continual exposure to truth keeps us tethered to reality. Constant exposure to truth works to keep us tethered to reality. This is why we see in the scriptures, I will hide my word, hide your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. The Word of God is sobering, it's alive, it's sharper than any double-edged sword, right? So it's, it's chiseling away, it's cutting away things that aren't befitting or becoming of a follower of Jesus. So it works in that way to tether us to reality. It was last week we had this nasty storm, you know, the hurricane that produced all those winds for us. You know, we were out without power for a long time. And I get woken up that morning to run outside and tie down the trampoline because we've lost two trampolines already to strong winds. So I get up, you know, I run out there. It's raining. Things are blowing all around. The trampoline's kind of in this hover mode. You know, it would kind of start to lift and it'd fall back down. So I'm scrambling to try to use ratchet straps or whatever I can at my disposal to grab. And I look around, and if you've been on my back porch, you understand it's like this Cracker Barrel type scenario with rusted tools of death everywhere, you know. And I'm sitting here trying to put things together, and I'm like, this, those giant scissor thingies are floating around, you know. I've got the giant saw on the wall that I'm like, this is not a good situation for me to, to, to be in at all, right? It was just a, a little bit worrisome of me. And let me just say this. Um, let me just say this with, with, with regards to Cracker Bell. Listen, if you don't think something sinister in somebody with a teardrop tattoos under their eyes, that's how many people they've killed. I'm just saying the stars on the aprons. That made me think of, that's what I thought of when my back porch is trying to kill me the other morning. I just wanted to throw that in there, call it comic relief, I don't know. But despite the wind, despite the trampoline, uh, trying to trying to take off all these things happening. Once I had it anchored, once I got that done, didn't matter what else was going on around it, the trampoline remained. The trampoline stood fast, right? The trampoline was there, it was safe because it was anchored. You look out and you see everything and anything flying right by, sometimes twice. I'm like, how did that happen? This is all going on, but the trampoline's holding fast. Why? Because it's anchored to something. And as I understand it, this is exactly how being sanctified in the truth works. Though the world is moving this way in a godless direction, adopting for themselves what they deem to be true, what they deem to be right and good, when we consider what absolute truth is and we can remain tethered to that, everything else moves, but we can hold steadfast. And we can be sanctified by truth. Here's a few critical components of being sanctified by truth that I want to close with. And next week, we're going to just have a sermon on what it is to be sanctified in truth. Because I got to the end of this sermon, I was like, I've got a whole lot to say here, and we don't have 45 extra minutes. So that's next week. 
So here's a few critical components of being sanctified by truth that I want to leave you with as Jesus prays that we would be sanctified in truth. First of all, you need to understand the negative, the not side. We are not, not distinguished from the world by relativistic truth. This is not what he talks about. You understand relativism, right? In this postmodern world, relativism is, hey, whatever's true for you is good, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's true for me. And the problem with relativism is it denies an absolute truth. And that's a major problem fundamentally with the Christian worldview. Because what we stand on is absolute truth. Everything has sprang from what we consider to be absolute truth. So for that to be challenged is a major issue for the Christian worldview. Just because you claim something to be true for yourself does not necessarily make it true for someone else. That's relativism. So we might look at them and say, okay, just because you think it's true doesn't make it true. There is an absolute truth. I understand relativism. Relatively speaking, I'm a great boxer if I'm in the ring with somebody with no arms or hands. Okay? That makes me a great boxer. But if I'm in there with anybody else that has ever boxed, I'm going to get whipped. I'm all of a sudden not a great boxer. That's relativism. Do you see the ridiculous the ridiculousness we've gotten ourselves into with relativism. Listen to this also. We are not distinguished from the world by preferential truth. What you prefer to be true, what you would like to be true, what you would hope to be true does not make it true. I mean, we get into theological debates for fun, for kicks and giggles, right? We can both be wrong. We can't both be right, especially when they're contrasting. So we have to understand that. It's like one of us can be right at best. Or we can both just be wrong. But just because you prefer that something's right, just because you would prefer that to be true doesn't make it true. And is that not the world we live in now? Is that not the undertone that you and I hear all the time, that we experience all the time? You get down to the nitty-gritty, you get down to the, the presuppositions, to the fundamentals of why someone believes what they believe, and oftentimes you hear it's their preference. And it's... Very, very similar to the third issue here that does not distinguish us. We are not distinguished from the world by emotional truth. And I talk to you all about this all the time. Be driven by what's right or what you know rather than what you feel. Your feelings will mess you up. Okay, they are, they're not to be trusted a lot of the times. You know, don't follow, young, young children, you're going to hear the world tell you, follow your heart. Do what's in your heart. No, 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 no. Don't do what's in your heart. Do what's right. Do what's true. Rely on the word of God to tell you what's right. Because your heart is deceitful and will lie to you. And will lead you astray. These are driving forces that plague our world today. This is a fundamental error in understanding and applying the nature of truth. Truth is a constant. Truth does not have a competitor in possibility. And what I mean by that is there is an absolute truth. And we're saying, hey, this is truth, or we're trying to discover truth. Maybe we can say, well, let's investigate to see if this is truth, and let's investigate to see if this is truth. And if they're two contrasting things, they can't both be true. If I'm up here and I say, look, I'm bald, but I have a hat on or something and you can't tell, there's a truth under the mask or there's a truth under the hat or under the beanie or whatever you may not know it because you don't know me but there is a truth there 
And that's what it is. You can investigate all day long and you can surmise and even prefer that I might be bald or be full of a uh, head full of hair, but that doesn't change the reality of truth. Now, on the other side, that's the beauty of absolute truth is it doesn't matter what your preference is. It doesn't matter how you approach it, what kind of relativism you've applied to it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change truth. And let me just give you this hopeful, hopeful word here. When you're sharing with somebody, you're sharing absolute truth with them. It doesn't matter how articulate they are in the ways of atheism. It doesn't matter, you know, that they have a 17 degrees in biochemical engineering or astrophysics or whatever, and they're arguing all these things that are way outside of your lane. Who cares? Who cares? Truth is what matters, and that is a tremendous hope to you. Sometimes we neglect to do things that we should do because we're not seminary grads or we don't have a doctorate like we think those things are required to be effective that's that is diminishing the power of the word of god wholeheartedly wholeheartedly don't believe that junk because that's what that is avery avery who's fresh out of high school wielding the word of god is just the same as me wielding the word of god going out and sharing with someone it's just the same so, Avery, if you're not witnessing, shame on you. Just to throw that at you, buddy. Or if we're using an excuse like, you know, I haven't, I have, I haven't read the Bible 738 times. I'm not ready. <laughs> Take that somewhere else, please, because not the child, not the child. Take that concept somewhere else. Sorry. <laughs> final thing. This was all a part of the final thing, so I'm still in that final thing. So, here we go. Absolute truth distinguishes us from the world. There are other truths that prove to be critical part of Christian worldview, but more and more fundamental, but, but I'm sorry, but none are more fundamental than these. Listen to these. God the Father is holy. And these are the three things I will unpack next week. God the Father is holy. The word of God is true. And Jesus is Lord. Those are foundational. And those can drive you to the ends of the earth. That's what you need. God is God the Father is holy. Just imagine, church, for just for a second, just imagine what our lives would look like compared to the rest of the world if we approached God the same way that Isaiah responded to God after God exposed holiness to Isaiah. What would that look like? We would arrive on the scene with a woe is me attitude rather than a disgruntled attitude that then God humbles us and brings us to a woe is me state. Major difference. The word of God is true. Subjection and adherence to the word of God automatically distinguishes us from the world. God's word is the user's guide for being unlike the world and more like Jesus. There's no magic formula to being apart from the world. It's simple. Do what the Bible says. Maybe that sounds like an oversimplification, but I don't think God has made understanding it so very lofty for us that we can't attain it. We can't attain it perfectly this side of heaven, obviously, but the idea is that we move in that direction. And finally, Jesus is Lord. The Lordship of Christ demands allegiance. You cannot serve two masters. Therefore, to uphold Jesus as Lord necessarily means sanctification in truth. You can't have Jesus as Lord and not adhere to the truth. Because a part of his lordship over you 
is that you abide by all that he says, all that he instructs, and you follow what he does. And when you do that, you become sanctified in the truth. Next week, we'll look at what these things look like as they're fleshed out practically in our lives. So I hope that you will plan to be here for that. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, you've given us the words of life. Lord, I pray that as we are wrestling through these things, Lord, as we are striving to apply the principles of Scripture that are sometimes obvious and sometimes, for me, difficult, pray that you would aid us in that. Jesus, we thank you for praying for us. Lord, we understand that, you know, your, your, your sovereign keeping power, your, your prayers, all of these things, Lord, are, are carrying us through. And we thank you for that. Lord, but help us to understand more fully what it is to, for you to pray that, 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 you know, pray for us in protection against the evil one. Lord, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a struggle in reconciling how hard things happen to us and how the enemy attacks us and all of these things. But help us to, 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 to have a, an understanding that is palatable for us, but, but right and accurate. Not preferential, but true. And Father, I pray that as we leave this place today, that you, according to your promise, would continue to conform us to the image of Jesus. Jesus, continue praying for us. We count on that. We have hope in that. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do what you do, and that's bring to our minds remembrance of the things that are necessary for appointed times. Lord, that that joy that Christ is praying for to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. That we would live in that joy, experience that joy as it's rightly applied and rightly understood. And Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.